welcome back to After School Science Club. This podcast is all about the weird and wonderful world of science. But have you ever wondered what science actually is? How do researchers reach their conclusions? How do we know when science is right? And what does it actually mean when people say, the science says? Today, we're taking a behind-the-scenes tour to find out how scientific discoveries really happen. So, before anything else, let's talk about the scientific method. The scientific method can be broken down into a few stages. So you start by asking a question of what you want to know about, let's say, my field with psychology. So I'd start by asking a question within my field and research it through, I'd look at the literature, I'd see what research has previously been done, what we currently understand about it, and then see where our gap in understanding and our gap in knowledge is. And that's sort of most of the time where you would fit your question into, basically. You would want to fill a gap in the literature and learn something new. Then, based on what we previously know, you would form a hypothesis around your question. So, let's say you are researching about how the weather influences well-being and happiness. Your hypothesis based on the literature might be that during the summer months, when there's more, you know, sunny days, people are more likely to be happy or have better, you know, self-reported well-being than in the winter months when it's darker. So that would be your hypothesis. And your null hypothesis, as we call it, or the alternative hypothesis would be that summer doesn't have an effect on happiness. It doesn't have an effect on well-being. We're just as likely to be happy in summer as we are winter. We all know that is not true. Um, (laughs) Then you would go and conduct an experiment to test the hypothesis. This could be a wide range of things depending on what field you're working in. In this example, it might be a self-reported questionnaire. Or if you didn't trust a self-reported questionnaire, you could evaluate people's moods in a more quantitative way. You could even take a bunch of rats and let some of them see the sun and not let some of them see the sun and see how they reacted in terms of outward signifiers of their moods. Sure. And if you were also wanting to look at in summer, if we are more exposed to vitamin D, you might want to test vitamin D levels and whether that has a quantitative effect on happiness as well. So again, there would be different ways that you test that. And then once you have conducted the experiment, you would then go and analyze the data. And based on what the data says, you will report the findings and draw conclusions from that finding. So let's say if vitamin D levels were higher in summer and people reported higher levels of well-being, you would conclude, and this is a very simplified version, but you would say there's an association between going through the summer months and higher levels of reported happiness and well-being. And then if you saw that there were also higher levels of vitamin D in the summer, that could also form an association. And then you'd want to test, do higher levels of vitamin D on their own increase senses of happiness and well-being? Or does it have to be summer? Is there something about the actual season other than the increase in vitamin D levels? So when we come up with an initial idea in science, we don't just take it for granted. We're always looking for the reasoning behind it. And that ties into correlation and causation, which is that 
two things might happen at the same time, but that doesn't mean that one of them happens because of the other. And in science, we have to be very careful about that. So we check if there are associations, but if there are associations, we then have to make sure by doing further experiments that the thing we think is causing the effect is actually causing the effect and isn't just coincidentally happening at the same time. Yeah, so the difference between causation and correlation, causation is when one variable that we're measuring directly causes another to happen. It's a cause and effect relationship between these two things. Whereas correlation means that these two things like vitamin D levels and happiness, statistically they're associated with each other, but just because they're associated and they're correlated with each other doesn't actually mean that one has caused the other. As we will say time and time again, correlation doesn't imply causation. There are lots of media outlets that fall into the trap of implying causation when the study is actually only studied correlation. Press releases and news articles often get the two confused and it can sort of mislead the public. One that I see a lot is when the media reports that drinking wine is good for your heart and prevents, prevents is the word here, prevents heart disease. Now that word suggests that if you drink a glass of wine per day, you are protected against developing heart disease. But what the research, which goes back and forth with the conclusions all the time about this link, what the research actually says is that maybe drinking wine in moderate amounts or drinking a glass of wine a day is associated with decreased risk of heart disease. It doesn't mean that if you drink a glass of wine a day, you're going to be protected because there could be multiple variables that increase or decrease your risk of heart disease, like a good diet and exercise. Absolutely. Perhaps people who drink a glass of red wine at a certain frequency are also the same people who are more likely to eat healthy food or have a more defined routine every day that includes exercise. And those could be the factors that are actually affecting that person's likelihood of heart disease. But because they coincide with drinking wine, the two are confounded or look like they're related in ways that they aren't. Yeah, this is the third variable problem, as it's called, where this third or, you know, any number of variables are affecting both variables that we're measuring. So it looks like drinking wine and reduced risk of heart disease are related, but they might not be. So one of the ones that I think can put it in perspective for people is ice cream sales and drowning incidents are positively correlated with each other. This means that when ice cream sales increase, drowning incidents also increase. That does not mean that ice cream sales are causing people to drown. What it actually is, or likely is, is this third variable of summer heat is driving ice cream sales it's nice hot weather everyone wants an ice cream but also that means people are maybe more likely to go swimming in lakes and places that they shouldn't be and increases drowning rate so it doesn't mean that ice cream sales are drowning are associated but it looks that way if you look at the data because the data goes up as the other one does it's just that actually this summer heat that you might not measure that's affecting the two one that i really like is that couples therapy causes divorce because people who attend couples therapy are more likely to divorce. But the couples therapy isn't related to that. And although I haven't tested this, quite possibly reduces the likelihood of any individual couple to divorce. It's just that a lot of people only attend therapy when they're already considering a divorce. 
That also sort of feeds into the post hoc ergo propter hoc fallacy as well. This fallacy can occur when one event happens quite close to another event. So you might have a couples therapy and then three months later you're divorced. But as you said, you might have gone into couples therapy anyway on the line of probably going to get divorced. But just because you've gone to couples therapy before it, people then associate couples therapy with the event that comes after it, which is divorce. And this is a big one, not just for stuff like this, but this is something that we saw a lot in the pandemic with people who were anti-vaxxers. If someone had recently had the COVID vaccine, then died, people would use this to push their own agenda and like they'd instantly attribute it to the vaccine. It could be anything that they died of and they would still say it was the vaccine just because it had come straight after. And I understand as humans, like it's so easy to fall into this trap. If A happens and then quickly after B happens, we instantly think that was the cause of it. Logical fallacies only exist because our brains are so well designed to look for patterns and answers in events and environments. So why don't we talk a little bit about how we know when science is actually right, quote unquote, and when it's not. One thing that we do a lot in science is we measure the statistical likelihood of our results to be in accordance with our hypothesis. So when we come up with a hypothesis, we're saying we think A happens because of B, or we think if A happens, then B will happen. To work out whether or not a particular hypothesis is right, we conduct experiments and we gather data. But then we take a look at the results we got and we ask ourselves, how likely are these results to appear if we're not right about our hypothesis? So it could just be that our hypothesis is wrong, or it could be that a different hypothesis is actually correct. But if our hypothesis isn't right, how likely are we to get these results? And if we're quite likely to get these results, then we can't rely on those results to tell us that we're right, because they could have happened without our hypothesis being right. But if they're very unlikely to happen if our hypothesis is wrong, then it's quite likely that our hypothesis actually isn't wrong. And we have a statistical measure of this called the p-value. The p-value is essentially the likelihood of a set of results happening without our hypothesis being right. So the smaller the p-value is, the less likely those results are to happen without our hypothesis being correct. So the smaller the p-value, the greater the likelihood of a correct hypothesis. And we have cutoffs for publication. Most of the time, it's 0.05, which is about a 5% chance that we'd get the same results without being right about our hypothesis. So generally, nobody will publish anything where they're not at least 95% sure that the hypothesis they're writing about is correct. Sometimes they're even more rigorous. Sometimes they're not. Why do we use the p-value? Well, science never tries to prove itself right. Science is always trying to prove itself wrong. The idea is that we come up with something, a hypothesis, and then we try as hard as we can to break it. If we can break it, we're wrong. But if we can't break it, no matter what we do, then it's a pretty good chance that we're right. So the p-value is us going, how likely are we to be wrong about our hypothesis? And instead of measuring, oh, you know, we have an 80% chance of being 
right about this, so we're probably right. What we do is try to break it. And if we can't break it through statistics, then there's a very, very low likelihood that we're wrong about what we're trying to figure out. And that's actually kind of ironic that science is always trying to prove itself wrong. But when we do find a result that is what we would call statistically insignificant, so that p-value is higher than 0.05, we actually are less likely to see it in the literature and in the published research. So publication bias is a really big problem that, you know, it's not a new problem, but positive and significant results are reported way more and represented way more in the literature than non-significant results. A positive result doesn't necessarily mean a good result or one that we want to be true. A positive result just means one that's very likely to be correct versus testing a hypothesis and finding out that it's wrong. Now this can lead people, both researchers and the public, to believe that an effect is greater than it is because obviously if an effect is reported a lot in the literature, you would think that, oh, this is actually something that goes on a lot, but there might be, you know, let's say 50 studies that came before it that actually doesn't find this effect at all. So they come to do in the literature reviews and they think that there's an effect, so they try and replicate it. They can't replicate it. This is actually a topic that's very close to my heart because the other problem is that if you get a negative result and you don't publish it, other people don't know that you've already done the work to get that negative result. So for a researcher who is trying to solve the problem, you don't know someone else has already tried what you're about to try because they didn't publish the result because it didn't work. So you might waste months or even years of time and money trying to do something, not because you think it worked before, but because you don't know that it didn't. And the reason this topic is so close to my heart is because I spent 18 months of my PhD studies trying to achieve something in the lab that others hadn't been able to achieve that we thought nobody had ever tried and then later discovered they had tried and weren't able to do. So then we had to try a completely different tack. And I would have loved if I could have just looked it up and seen that somebody had already tried it and they hadn't succeeded. And this is why I'm loving the fact that more and more there are outlets for specifically publishing negative results. So results where your experiment didn't work or where your hypothesis turned out to be wrong. There used to be one journal, the Journal of Negative Results. Now there are actually quite a number and some of them are international and some of them are divided by the specific fields that publish in those journals. But it's great because a researcher like I was at the time can go back and look into what other people have done, and they'll actually be able to see if someone's tried what they wanted to try and failed to make it work. Although it's great that scientific information is publicly available, and also great that it's now becoming easier and easier to find out what didn't work as well as what did, there are some aspects of science that aren't ideal to be made public because scientists use complicated terminology, they don't explain their research for non-experts or even for people who might be experts in fields that aren't very close to theirs. It can lead to confusion. It can lead to difficulties with communication. And we saw a lot of this kind of thing happening in the COVID-19 pandemic as well. Scientists would communicate the 
most up-to-date understanding of what was going on, our best knowledge about SARS-CoV-2, our best knowledge about prevention, our best knowledge about treatment. But there was a failure to explain how science works, how sure we could be about what we did and didn't know, and how that information should be used. And in that, I feel like experts really failed the public because it led to a lot of confusion and some real problems getting people to understand the true nature of this virus, the disease it causes, and what needs to be done about it. So obviously that's why we then come in as science communicators. We are sort of that bridge between scientists and the public, the scientists who are using all their scientific jargon and then the lay public who might not fully understand it for whatever reason. The thing is with COVID is it unfolded on such a public stage during those years, which usually just doesn't happen. And discoveries are discoveries are usually a bit slower because of, first of all, the lack of research funding and resources. But even for the areas of research that are developing at a more rapid pace, they still don't unfold in such a public way as COVID did. As scientists, we know that knowledge and our understanding is always evolving and therefore public health recommendations also evolve and they change with the data. Like if you think back, I say if you think back as if we we're alive, but if you think back to the 1930s and to the 1950s, advertisers would promote smoking as a healthy behavior and they even brought in doctors to be on their ad campaigns and support their claims well now we know that smoking is highly dangerous and can cause cancer and kill which we know through scientific research and that's something that we've evolved over time as new data has emerged and i get people's hesitancy with certain things because i think i don't know make a few think different but I feel like there's a difference between being, if we're going to talk about, let's say, vaccines, I think there's a difference between being an anti-vaxxer and vaccine hesitant. Anti-vax rhetoric has been around since the smallpox vaccine was introduced centuries ago, so it's not really a new thing, but it really gained traction in our modern society after Andrew Wakefield's false claims that there's a link between the MMR vaccine and autism. We're not going to cover that piece of controversial research today but we will be bringing you a full episode on the topic in season two so stay tuned for that but i will say that this all makes it very difficult as a science communicator to talk about vaccines and research and there are doctors and researchers that have been hounded during the pandemic because of their work but i do believe there's a difference between being an anti-vaxxer and vaccine hesitant i think it's entirely normal to be hesitant about a new vaccine especially if you're not a scientist or a doctor and you just want to know the risks and benefits before you get it especially if you're unaware of the way clinical trials work and why the covid-19 vaccine was developed so quickly and you can reason with vaccine hesitant people and obviously in clinical trials they take so long, they take 10 to 15 years because of all the paperwork, the lack of funding, the lack of resource. Whereas in the COVID pandemic, it was a global health emergency. So these sort of barriers and red tape were taken away. And I want to be clear, it's not that the clinical trials were rushed in a scientific sense. They were, of course, rushed in the sense that we wanted them to be complete as early as was reasonably possible. But that reasonably was never forgotten. A number of things were done to make these clinical trials faster that typically don't happen 
partly for bureaucracy reasons and partly for funding reasons. You can't usually afford, for instance, to run several stages of a clinical trial in parallel instead of one after the other. And that was done for the COVID-19 vaccines. That doesn't mean that they were tested any less rigorously than any other vaccine. It just means that they found a quicker way to arrange those testing protocols. And this is the kind of thing that I agree with you, Liv. A vaccine-hesitant person might want to know, how is it possible to get a vaccine to market so quickly for this when normally they take so much longer? That's a perfectly reasonable question, and I would expect a number of people to be curious about that, especially if they want to understand more about how the process works and how science works. But it's a question with an answer, and I think it's perfectly reasonable to ask the question and less reasonable not to be willing to listen to the answer. To be fair, I think that's what made both our jobs as science communicators, but also other scientists and researchers, and that's what made their job so hard during the pandemic, is understanding where you want to put your time and effort, because it got to the point where it was so exhausting to try and convince everybody that vaccines are good, that helps protect the population, or, you know, trying to convince people to trust the experts on this. And that also sort of relates, I think, to not just vaccines, but wearing masks as well. And that goes back to the whole public stage thing and having our knowledge and understanding evolve over time, because I will say it didn't help for the public that there was mixed messaging at the start of the pandemic, because that just confuses people. And at first there was sort of this hesitance to recommend the use of face masks to protect against SARS-CoV-2. And that was largely due to the availability of the evidence at the time. And also, yeah, how quickly our understanding was developing and also because of the fear that there would be a shortage of PPE and frontline workers would be left without. That was the initial thing. I mean, obviously, at first, there was the belief that SARS-CoV-2 was transmitted by droplets and that masks weren't necessary because it wouldn't travel far enough if you kept your distance. We obviously now know differently, and that is a scientific conclusion. We know for a fact that SARS-CoV-2 has airborne transmission and that standing six feet away isn't enough to make much difference. But secondarily, even once we knew that, the reason that the public were recommended to use things like cloth or surgical masks, which will protect someone else but won't protect you, is because there were a lot of fears around a shortage of PPE for the healthcare workers who needed it far more urgently than the public. Now that there's not such a shortage and there are plenty of masks for everyone, science is very consistent about the fact that people should be wearing masks, especially if there's a likelihood of exposure, such as indoors or in a crowd or near someone who you know has been exposed. And there's also very strong knowledge that the masks you should be wearing are ones that protect you as well as others against aerosol transmission. So, for instance, masks that are rated N95 or above. There's no doubt about this anymore, but there's still a perception of doubt. And there is also a lot of misinformation, such as the idea that masks are a breeding ground for bacteria, which they are not if used properly. They can be if used incorrectly, so if reworn for many days on end without cleaning. Or the idea that masks will reduce the available oxygen or increase the rate of carbon dioxide that you breathe, which I suppose for a 
badly made or falsely advertised mask might be true, but is not true for any true medical mask, which have minimum breathability standards for precisely that reason. So if you take just one thing away from this episode, please take away the knowledge that science is always updating its understanding of the world around us. Usually that's to improve or refine our knowledge, not to change it completely because scientists go to great lengths to ensure that the likelihood of being wrong is as low as possible. But science does evolve and our understanding does expand. A couple of centuries ago, we didn't even know that pathogens were a thing. Germ theory came out of nowhere and changed our entire understanding of infectious disease. So know that science does evolve, science does grow, and that scientists do want to communicate that. So there will always be an effort to communicate the most up-to-date understanding of everything around us to the public. Finally, I just want to jump in here to tease an upcoming episode, hopefully next season, on how to spot misinformation and disinformation, and yes, there is a difference, using the critical thinking skills we all have, not just as scientists, but as the public too. If you liked this episode, don't forget to subscribe to our podcast, leave us a review, or both. Thank you for listening to After School Science Club, hosted by Liv Gaskell and Mick Schubert, with music by Sam Watts. I'm Liv, and you can find me on Instagram at sciencewithliv. And I'm Mick, and you can find me at mickschubert.com, as well as a variety of other places. You can also email us at scyclubpodcast at gmail.com. That's S-C-I club podcast at gmail.com. So get in touch if you have any burning questions or if you want to suggest a cool topic for us to discuss in a future episode. Uh, thanks, and we'll see you next episode. Boom! We did it!